0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: In the 1800s, the small, isolated village of Saxtown, Illinois, didn't offer much in the way of entertainment. Farm life was boring and routine. The 100 residents of Saxtown had only one way to keep things interesting. Gossip.
0: Usually that meant whispering about their neighbors, romantic partners, family arguments, or money troubles. But in March of 1874, the Saxtown Gossip Mill went into overdrive when an entire family was found brutally hacked to death in their local farmhouse.
1: Rumors quickly swirled about possible motives and suspects, Soon, everyone had their own unfounded opinion on who the murderer was, and they weren't afraid to share it. The local newspapers weren't much better either.
0: The first journalists to cover the brutal Saxtown murders quickly realized that there was little to no concrete evidence or information. But that wasn't a problem. What the newsmen lacked in facts, they made up for with sensationalism.
1: Soon, newspapers across the country were emblazoned with the headlines like The Illinois Horror, Wholesale Human Slaughter, and even Demonism.
0: But back home in Saxtown, the articles only amplified the town's paranoia. When everyone's whispers and rumors were suddenly plastered on the front page, no one knew who to trust.
1: They only knew that a local family was dead, and someone Had swung the axe.
0: This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
1: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case.
0: You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: This is our final episode on the Saxtown Murders, the horrific axe murder of the Stilson Reader family. Last week, we covered the Stilson Reader's life and death in the small town of Saxtown, Illinois. This week, we'll cover the many possible motives of the murders and the ongoing mystery of who committed this heinous crime.
0: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: On March 20th, 1874, the peaceful village of Saxtown, Illinois, lost its innocence the once-anonymous village of German immigrants would forever be known as the site of a terrible massacre.
0: That night, three generations of the stiltsen Reeder family had been killed in their small farmhouse. 36-year-old Fritz stiltsen Reeder, his aging father Carl, his wife Anna, and his two young children had all been butchered in a brutal axe attack.
1: There were no witnesses to the crime, and by the following morning, just about every citizen of Saxtown was buzzing with speculation. Many of them had already settled on a suspect, a man named Fred Bolts.
0: And it seemed like some hard evidence proved their case. Only a handful of hours after the attack, someone discovered a trail of blood leaving the crime scene and heading straight to Fred Bolts' farm.
1: Fred had lived near the Stilzenrieder farm ever since he immigrated to America from Germany in the 1860s. He'd even become part of the Stilzenrieder family by marrying Fritz's sister-in-law. Fred and his new wife soon had five children.
0: But family life wasn't easy for Fred Bolts. He struggled to make ends meet, and his farm barely produced enough wheat to survive. He had five young mouths to feed, and he was desperate.
1: So... When Carl, stiltsen reader, offered to loan him $300, Fred took the money. It felt like a friendly deal between family. Sure, Carl would charge a little interest, but with the money, Fred could pay for a tractor and increase his farm's
0: productivity. He would be able to pay Carl back no problem. Or so he thought.
1: Even with the investment, the farm couldn't turn a profit. Crops just couldn't manage to grow. To make matters worse, Carl became increasingly impatient about repayment.
0: Eventually, Carl went so far as to put a lien on Fred's farm. If Fred didn't find the money to repay Carl fast, he would lose his land.
1: Needless to say, Fred was furious with Carl Stilzenreeder. His land was the very thing that brought him to Saxtown in the first place. Now it was on the verge of disappearing.
0: It drove a massive rift within the family. Fred forbade his wife from speaking to her sister, and for several months prior to the murder, the Boltzes severed ties with the Stilton Reeder family completely.
1: Saxtown residents knew about the family's feud, and they were happy to share the story with local investigators. The Saxtown locals also told the sheriff that Fred acted suspiciously when he first heard about the murder.
2: What do you mean you can't? You must come now. Your brother and sister-in-law are dead. My boots are wet. I can't make the walk. Forget your boots. It's your family, Fred. It's a massacre. Well, I've been feeling sick these past few days, and this weather is not good for me. Where's Margaret? She should at least be there. It's her sister, after all. No, Margaret will not be going. Now, if you'll excuse me, you're letting in the cold air.
0: Sheriff James W. Hughes was not buying Fred's excuses. And so, on March 21st, the 48-year-old sheriff sent his deputies to the Bolts farm to ask Fred to come to the crime scene. As the Stiltson Reeder family's closest relative, Hughes thought Fred needed to be there.
1: Fred apparently didn't agree. He told the deputies he had too much farm work to do. And so, a few hours later, Hughes sent the deputies back to Fred's farm to escort him to the crime scene, whether he liked it or not.
0: But when they arrived, they noticed Fred was having a heated conversation with a man named John Ofkin. John was a local farmhand, well known for his skills with an axe.
1: Fred was clearly nervous as he met with the deputies. He told them that while he would accompany them to the farm peacefully, he would not Under any circumstance, look at the dead bodies.
0: When he arrived, the crowd had already decided that he was the killer.
2: There
3: he is! There he is! Murderer!
2: He's the one! I know it!
3: String him up! Savage!
1: As Fred approached, Sheriff Hughes noticed he was shaking and wet with sweat. Maybe Fred had a guilty conscience. Or perhaps he was just stunned by how quickly his friends and neighbors turned on him.
0: The sheriff was determined to get an answer to this question, but when he questioned Fred in front of the crowd, he didn't get much in the way of answers.
2: I, I told you, I don't know where you heard that, but it isn't true. I loved my brother-in-law and his family.
4: How do you explain the trail of blood leaning towards your farm? Blood? I don't know anything about any blood. We think the killer wounded himself.
2: Well, then it can't have been me. I don't have a scratch on me.
4: Prove it. Take off your clothes. But I, now, in front of everyone?
2: Strip him down. Let's see the wounds. Murder!
0: But it turned out Fred was telling the truth. He had no visible injuries. And after his clothes were inspected closely, there wasn't a drop of blood to be found. His boots, however, were still wet and seemed to have a smudge of red on the toe. This was
1: enough for Sheriff Hughes. He ordered that Fred be held, pending the results of the coroner's inquest.
0: Next, the sheriff sent Constable William Bongart and Justice of the Peace Isaiah Thomas to search Fred's home. They searched the farm for over two hours but came up with nothing. No murder weapon, No hidden money, no blood. They returned to the crime scene
1: empty-handed to help the coroner's inquest. Sheriff Hughes was disappointed about the lack of evidence. He hoped the coroner would find more than he had.
0: At 2 p.m. on March 21, 1874, Coroner John J. Ryan arrived at the Stilton Reader Farm with several officers and physicians in tow, Ryan's job was to hold an inquest in front of a jury to conclude how the family had died.
1: It didn't take long before he and his team stumbled across two interesting pieces of evidence that the sheriff somehow missed.
4: Whoa, Mr. Ryan, watch your step. Hmm? What is it, son? Boot marks. There and there, leading away from the house. Heavy work boots with nailed soles. And take a look at this.
3: You're right. It looks like something's been dragged. Maybe the axe?
4: This isn't just mud. This is blood.
0: The coroner's investigators found boot prints and what looked like the mark of a dragged axe in the yard of the farmhouse. As his detectives continued searching the house, coroner Ryan assembled a jury. In the early evening of March
1: 21st, He chose six local men and held the inquest in the yard outside the crime scene. They interviewed many people, starting with Ben Schneider, the man who first discovered the bodies. But the inquest took a turn when they called in Fred.
0: Once they swore Fred in, the inquest ordered him to go look at the bodies. He had no choice. Tentatively, Fred started into the farmhouse, but he quickly turned away from the grisly scene When he finally faced the blood and brutalized bodies, he nearly fainted.
1: Some Saxonites, watching from the lawn, thought Fred's nerves made him suspicious. Others believed it was only natural, given how horrific the murders were.
0: Once Fred walked through the house, the inquest inspected Fred's body one more time for a wound. Again, they found nothing. And so, when the inquest finally came back with a verdict on the morning of March 22, 1874, they didn't name Fred as a suspect. The culprit was still officially unknown.
1: Much to the dismay of many in Sackstown, Fred was free to go. The murderer was still on the loose.
0: After the inquest, Coroner Ryan released the results of his own investigation, and he came to a very different conclusion than Sheriff Hughes. The coroner believed that there were actually two killers, one who used a knife and the other armed with an axe.
1: Hughes might have thought the murder was some kind of feud, but Ryan thought it could be as simple as a robbery. Apparently, Fritz had just received $100 from the local mill, and that money was still missing. So was the rumored gold that the family had just inherited. Although there were a few dollars left in the house... The thieves may have still run away with a huge bounty.
0: With that, the coroner turned the entire population of Saxtown into potential suspects. Not everyone in town had a personal issue with the Stilton Reader family, but just about all of them were desperate for cash. Suddenly, the close knit Saxtown residents started looking at their neighbors in a new light.
1: Next, we'll examine the other possible suspects. Hi, it's Vanessa from
5: Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers from the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday free on Spotify or wherever you
1: get your podcasts. And now, back to our story.
0: Sunday, March 22nd, 1874, was a gray and gloomy morning in Saxtown with cold winds blowing in from the north. The weather seemed appropriate for the day the town decided to bury the stiltson family.
1: First, the bodies were carried out of the family home and placed in the nearby barn, so they could be prepared for burial. Local women washed and cleaned the corpses. It was a gruesome task and hard to stomach. With no preservatives or refrigeration, the bodies had already begun to rot.
0: The local men were tasked with making three caskets, one for Carl Reeder, one for Fritz and Anna, and one for the two young children to share. The homemade caskets were simple, made from a local oak tree. When they were ready, the bodies were wrapped in sheets and placed inside. Then the men drove in nails to seal them shut.
1: Each coffin was placed onto its own wagon, to journey to the nearby Freivogel Cemetery. News of the murder had already spread through the papers, and spectators from all across Illinois had decided to make the long journey to attend the funeral, and maybe pick up a scrap of gossip while they paid respects.
0: Over 1,000 people crowded the small cemetery as a local priest read the eulogy. Many cried as the bodies were lowered into their unmarked graves.
1: The entire population of Saxtown was there, even Fred Bolts. Fred seemed oddly unaffected by the Reverend's moving tribute to the murdered family. And once again, he was spotted near the equally suspicious John Ofkin, the farmhand known for his skills with an axe.
0: But Fred could feel the glares of his suspicious neighbors all around him. He tried to stay to himself as much as possible, lowering his head so as not to make eye contact with any of his nosy neighbors.
1: As the caskets were covered in dirt, the priest prayed over the five family members. Finally, the Lord's Prayer was recited by the entire crowd to conclude the ceremony. But the show wasn't over yet.
4: Amen. Amen. Hey! Get your hands off me. Fred Bolts, you are under arrest. Arrest? I was just released yesterday. There's no evidence at all. I'm only following orders, Mr. Bolts. You'll have to take that up with Sheriff Hughes. Now, come on.
2: (sighs) I didn't do it, you hear? I didn't
4: do it!
0: Sheriff Hughes may not have had the evidence to convict Fred, but he was certain he was guilty. He also ordered that John Ofkin be arrested as well. Maybe some time in a jail cell would convince one of them to confess.
1: Hughes believed Fred's conscience would get the better of him. Fred Bolts was well known for being a devout Christian. He taught scripture at the local Lutheran church and went to mass several times a week. In fact, his only request when Hughes locked him in a cell was a copy of the
0: Bible to read. A good Christian couldn't let a sin-like murder sit on his heart forever. At least, that was what Sheriff Hughes thought. Unfortunately for the sheriff, Fred continued to deny his involvement in the murders, no matter how long the sheriff questioned him.
1: The sheriff's interrogations of John went even worse. The farmhand was known for being quiet. He lived up to that reputation while in jail.
0: Sheriff Hughes did catch a break, however, when John Ofkin's boss and housemate informed police that John had not been home the night of the murders. When Hughes asked John where he'd been, the man finally broke his silence. He had stayed at a friend's nearby farmhouse.
1: Hughes ordered his men to search the farmhouse immediately. When they did, they uncovered a black cloth bag belonging to John. It was stained with blood.
0: John looked increasingly more guilty, but that didn't extend to Fred. By March 31st, Fred had been jailed for over a week. He'd never wavered in his claims of innocence, and locals were less sure he was the culprit. Finally, Fred's local church rallied behind him and demanded that he be released. Some
1: newspapers pointed out that Fred actually had very little to gain from the murders. While Fred's loans may have been forgiven, he wouldn't inherit any money from the Stilton Reader's deaths. The family's wealth was set to go to Carl's only living brother, Charles.
0: That introduced a whole new suspect, Charles Stilton Reader.
1: Charles Stilton Reader had moved to America shortly after his brother Carl. At first, he settled in New York City, but soon joined his sibling in Saxtown. He bought a piece of land right next door to Carl's Farm in 1855.
0: By all accounts, Charles's farm was a great success. Yet only a few years later, Charles, along with his wife Lizette and their five children moved away to Richview.
1: Whether Charles moved for greener pastures or because of an issue with his hot-headed brother Carl is unknown. What we do know is that the brothers often argued... And nothing caused more problems than money. In
0: 1862, an argument over a family inheritance got ugly. A third Stilton Reader brother, who had owned a successful liquor store in New York City, died with no children and no will.
1: The fight over the estate got so bad that the brothers never spoke to each other again.
0: It had obviously made Charles angry. But murder was another question entirely. To make matters even more suspicious, Hughes learned that Charles' eldest son, 25-year-old Henry, was spotted near Saxtown on the day before the murder.
1: And when another witness saw him a few days later, Henry's hand was badly cut.
0: Sheriff Hughes agreed that Carl's brother was at least worth talking to. So he made a 55-mile trek to Charles's farm in Richview, Illinois to have a chat with the old man.
4: Charles Stilton Reader?
2: <coughs> yes.
4: I'm here to speak to you about your brother, Carl. Oh, God bless his soul in heaven. You're aware, then? Why didn't we see you at the funeral? Oh, it was such a shame... We didn't learn about his death until it was too late for us to travel. I see. Well, it looks like you might be inheriting a nice piece of land soon. Great. More land to look after.
2: (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Do you mind if we move inside? I might need to lie down. I've been quite sick these last few weeks.
1: As soon as Sheriff Hughes saw how frail and sickly Charles was, he knew there was no way he had committed the crime. But it was still possible that one of his three sons had.
0: Strangely, Charles had already prepared a defense for at least one of his sons. He gave Hughes a signed affidavit from several residents of Richview, stating that Henry and Charles's youngest son, William, had not left the town in the week before the murders. That left Martin, the middle son, who worked
1: for the railroad in a neighboring county. Charles didn't have an alibi for Martin, but assured the sheriff that Martin's employer would be able to provide one.
0: The next day, Wednesday, March 25th, Charles visited Sheriff Hughes at the Belleville Jail. He brought along a lawyer and a physician's note stating that he had not left his bed the night of the murder.
1: But Hughes still felt something was off. While at the jail, Charles stopped by to see Fred Bolts and John Ofkin, who were still in their cells. Apparently, all the men knew each other.
0: A few hours later, Charles went to the courthouse and donated $1,000 as a reward for the capture of the Stilton Reader's killers. This threw Hughes off. A guilty man wouldn't put up his own money to help solve the case. Besides a suspicious son and a shaky motive, Hughes had nothing on Charles. Or Fred Bolts and John Ofkin, for that matter.
1: As the investigation stretched into April, Sheriff Hughes got desperate. He started comparing the shoe prints at the murder scene to random men around town. And eventually, he found two locals with the same size. With nothing else to go on, Hughes decided to take a wild chance.
0: On April 8, 1874, the sheriff made a hasty arrest that stunned the entire town of Saxtown. His deputies took Fred Eckert Jr. and Jacob Petrie, the sons of two well-respected Saxtown farmers, into custody. The evidence against them was circumstantial at best. The
1: court agreed. There was no possible way for the sheriff to determine what shoe prints came from the time of the murder and what shoe prints occurred afterwards, when dozens of Saxtown citizens visited the home. The jail cells were filling up with people based on only the flimsiest of evidence. The men were quickly released.
0: On April 25th, after more than a month in jail, John and Fred appeared in court and were immediately granted release with bail. Three days later, a grand jury determined that there was not sufficient evidence to indict either of them. Sheriff Hughes now had no suspects in his jail— despite this being the most high-profile case in his county's history.
1: Perhaps the pressure was getting to him, because a few weeks later, Sheriff Hughes once again made a hasty arrest.
4: <coughs> sheriff, do you have news? Have you found the culprits? I'd like to think so. Your boy Henry around? Henry!
2: The sheriff wants a word!
4: Yeah, pa? Henry, I believe you played a part in that nasty business down at your uncle's back in March. You better come with me. Well, now, wait a minute. (coughs) How's that cut on your hand healing, Henry? Where'd you say you got that again? I... I... You think about it. We can discuss it further down at the jailhouse.
2: I can't believe this. If this is the kind of investigation you're running... You bet to hell I'm taking back my $1,000 reward.
0: But just like all the other arrests, Hughes made this one without any solid evidence, and it didn't take long for Charles's lawyer to get Henry released. Charles Stilson Reader was furious
1: with the sheriff and pulled his reward money. He said,
2: That money stimulated the detectives to an unusual degree so much that they arrest innocent persons on the bare suspicions.
0: Hughes was out of options. He couldn't hold any more people in jail based strictly on his suspicions. 1874 came to an end without any more arrests or breaks in the case. A few years later, Hughes handed in his gun and badge and retired as sheriff. With that, he gave up on the case for good.
1: But one man didn't give up. Isaiah Thomas, the local school teacher in Justice of the Peace. Isaiah believed that Hughes's shoddy investigation had overlooked key suspects. He was convinced that the sheriff had arrested the wrong culprits, and he was determined to prove it.
0: Isaiah's suspicions would soon erupt into a massive legal battle and light a brand new fire under the cold case.
1: Soon, we'll dive into Isaiah's own investigation and try to strip the facts from fiction. And now, back to our story.
0: By 1876, life in Saxtown had returned to normal. It had been two years since the grisly murder shocked the town, and almost no one talked about the Stilton Reader family. The unsolved crime seemed like it was better left forgotten. But 33-year-old Isaiah Thomas couldn't let go. He was convinced he could do what Sheriff Hughes never did, find the family's killer.
1: Isaiah may have only been a schoolteacher, but he had a sharp eye for detective work. He began spending nearly every evening interviewing locals about the murder. Soon, his case file was almost as large as the sheriff's once was.
0: It didn't take long for Isaiah to land on two new suspects of his own. Their names were George Schneider and George Killian, and Isaiah was sure they had a hand in the murders. Isaiah
1: still remembered how George Schneider had fainted near the crime scene that day two years ago. And how could he forget George Killian's bizarre, almost gleeful behavior when he saw the mutilated family both men were hiding something. He was sure
0: of it. And Isaiah's suspicions only increased when he saw George Killion's name appear in the local news.
1: Killion's brother, also known as Charles, had wound up in the hospital after an apparent suicide by gunshot. But when a priest tried to visit with Charles, Killion refused to let him into the hospital room. He seemed to be afraid of what the dying man might say.
2: Killian, let me through. The doctors may not be able to save your brother's body, but the least I can do is save his soul. No can do. Charles told me he doesn't want any visitors. He's barely coherent. Please, just step aside. <clears throat> uh, uh, uh,
4: uh, oh, My arm, it's- Sorry, Father. We won't be needing your services today.
0: Isaiah Thomas didn't believe for a second that Charles shot himself. It seemed obvious to him that Killian had fired the gun and invented the suicide story to cover his tracks. If he could kill his own brother, Isaiah thought, then the Stiltson-Reader family would have been no trouble. And Isaiah wasn't shy about sharing his theory with just about anyone who would listen.
3: That's right, George Killian. I bet my life on it.
0: Killian, you're sure?
3: I have my reasons. But I also heard he knew something about the Stilton Reader killings. George gets loose lips when he drinks.
2: The man is drunk all the time. I've heard him spouting all kinds of nonsense myself. It doesn't mean-
3: Drinking his sorrows away. George is the one. Schneider, definitely.
2: Wait, George Schneider? I thought we were talking about George Killian.
3: What? Yeah, that's what I said. Killian, or Schneider, or maybe both of them.
1: Isaiah's evidence was solely based on hearsay, but that didn't stop him from spreading it like it was fact. Over the next five years, Isaiah became more and more vocal about his belief that Killian and Schneider were the Stilson Reader's killers.
0: Eventually, the news reached Killian, and he decided to put an end to the rumors once and for all. In May of 1881, he sued Isaiah Thomas for defamation. The court couldn't hear the
1: case until early 1882. So in the meantime, Isaiah insisted that several people in Saxtown had overheard George Killian talking about the
0: murders. Isaiah tried to convince the witnesses to testify on his behalf, but they all refused or denied saying anything in the first place. It's unclear whether the supposed witnesses changed their stories out of fear of Killian, or if Isaiah had imagined the whole thing altogether.
1: Either way, the schoolteacher remained convinced that George Killian was guilty. But with no hard evidence and no witnesses, Isaiah lost the case. The court ordered him to pay Killian several hundred dollars for defamation.
0: That didn't stop Isaiah, however. After the trial, he headed straight to the reporters waiting on the courthouse steps.
3: Mr. Thomas! Can you give us a quote on the court's new ruling? I don't care what the court said. I know George Killian was responsible for that poor family's murder, and I won't stop saying so.
0: But eventually, Isaiah's near obsessive determination caught the eye of St. Clair County State's attorney, Robert D. W. Holder. And Holder thought the school teacher might actually be on to something. Holder had a theory of his own. Killian may not have been the murderer himself, but he had at least been a witness to the crime.
1: In March of 1882, Holder opened a grand jury investigation into the Stilson-Reader murders. This time, witnesses were subpoenaed so they could not squirm out of their testimony.
0: Under oath, Isaiah Thomas testified that George Killion had told him he knew that George Schneider was one of the murderers, and that Killion knew who the other murderers were. Two other men from Saxtown corroborated Thomas's version of events.
1: Another witness claimed that Killian had seen George Schneider sleeping next to him on the morning of the murder, his boots covered in blood. The witness suggested that Schneider had given Killian some of the stolen money to buy his silence. With each new testimony, Holder strengthened
3: his case. And over time, you got close to Mr. Killian.
2: Yes, I worked as a laborer on the same farm as him. He'd have me over sometimes for supper.
3: And did he say anything that roused your suspicions?
2: Listen, George got drunk a lot, and when he got drunk he'd get violent, especially to his wife. That poor lady. I would try to calm her after the beatings. One time after a big fight she said something… something strange.
3: Do you care to share with the court?
2: That no matter how upset George got with her… He would never leave her, because she knew too many of George's secrets.
0: Once Holder was done with his witnesses, he revealed something that neither Sheriff Hughes or Isaiah Thomas could ever find. Actual hard evidence. It was a vest that supposedly belonged to Killian, and it was covered in blood.
1: Killian admitted that the vest was his, but claimed he had lost it several days before the murders. Holder added that size 5 boot prints were found leading away from the crime scene. Killian wore a size 5 boot.
0: Investigators had reportedly discovered prints at the scene from a size 11 boot as well. According to one witness, the prints matched George Schneider's shoes exactly.
1: Killian likely saw the case building against him, so that evening... He headed straight to the newspaper reporters waiting outside the courthouse to proclaim his innocence once again.
2: Mr. Killian!
3: Mr. Killian, do you have a comment about today's session?
2: What would you like to tell readers about the case?
4: I don't know anything more about the Stilton Reader murders than you do. Did you ever claim that you knew who killed the Stilton Readers? I don't remember that I ever did. But you know a man will say a good deal when he is drunk. That's all it was, honestly.
0: But the journalists weren't convinced. The papers were soon full of theories that Killian had taken hush money from the murderer to keep their identity a secret.
1: The grand jury came to the same conclusion. They indicted George Killian for being an accessory to the crime after the fact. Killian quickly posted bail and hired a prominent local lawyer. Meanwhile, Saxtown and the entire county of St. Clair, Illinois, anxiously awaited the trial. Finally, they would get a conclusion to the horror story that had haunted the town for years.
0: But that trial never came. George Killian and his lawyer were determined to squash the indictment as quickly as possible. Killian's lawyer argued that the grand jury had no real evidence. Eventually, the judge agreed and dropped the indictment. And with that, the Stilton Reader murder case was closed for good.
1: Saxtown's residents were shocked. They were sure that George Killian had been involved. And even if the law didn't agree, the town never trusted Killian again. The allegations followed him for the rest of his life.
0: Eventually, all the potential suspects died or disappeared. And the story of the gruesome 1874 murders became nothing but a bit of local Saxtown history. But Charles Reader refused to let the memory of his family be forgotten for good. Before his death in 1897, Charles spent some of the Reader family inheritance to erect a large grave marker for his slain brother Carl and the other four victims. It still stands today, a monument to the dead and the ongoing mystery of their deaths.
1: So, looking at all of the suspects, I agree with Isaiah and Holder that George Killian was either the killer or an accomplice. He acted strangely at the crime scene, and he had openly admitted to it multiple times, according to witness testimonies.
0: That makes sense, but I have to disagree. I still think the brutality of the murders points to something personal, not just a robbery gone wrong. Fred Bolts had the most to gain from the Stilton Reeder family's death, and his feud with Carl might just have been enough to push him over the edge.
1: Whatever the case may be, the brutal murderers did more than kill five people. The innocents of Saxtown, Illinois, died that night as well. The slaughter showed just how fragile a community can be, and how easily neighbors can turn on one another when paranoid gossip sets in.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Saxtown murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Axe Murders of Saxtown, The Unsolved Crime That Terrorized a Town and Shocked the Nation, by Nicholas J.C. Pister, extremely helpful to our research.
1: You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
0: We'll see you next time.
1: If we live till next time.
0: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by River Donahue and Giles Hofseth fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, Laura Faye Smith, and Ellie Schiff. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.
5: Hi listeners, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host Greg for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.